Uh, thanks for taking the time to come out and uh, hear me talk a little bit about DynamoDB today. Uh, today I'm going to talk a little bit about the kind of adaptive capacity features and functionality of the platform. And it's really actually uh, a really good timing for me personally to be doing this particular talk because I just came out of the war room from Black Friday and Cyber Monday where I watched uh, this platform perform uh, in every way uh, and deliver on every single feature that I'm going to talk to you about today. So it was really, really cool uh, to see the validation in real time of a system that can scale so dynamically uh, like Dynamo. So today uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, oh, got that the wrong way. Uh, we're going to talk about the traditional approaches to database scaling, the way things used to work. And uh, then we're going to get into how NoSQL databases actually scale uh, when compared to relational databases and why it's really interesting for us to actually look at this new technology because we are now starting to develop applications that are exceeding the capacity uh, of relational systems. Now we're developing new technologies to extend the life uh, of the relational database, but the reality is we're soon going to overwhelm the processing capacity of the single instance relational database. Uh, <coughs> so we're going to need to look at next generation solutions like NoSQL uh, so, we under so understanding how they scale is actually pretty important. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and then we're going to get into the evolution of, of, Dynamo, of DynamoDB and, and how it actually provides the adaptive capacity uh, and, and this dynamic platform that is so well suited to today's kind of application environment where we want to uh, you know, align the infrastructure behind the demand for an application. Right? We don't want to have to uh, you know, provision this fixed infrastructure uh, at peak capacity. We want to have systems that can scale to meet that demand and then go away right, for some period of time when that demand is no longer there. And Dynamo provides that ability, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how that actually happens. So the first thing to understand with databases uh, is that capacity planning is hard. Right? How much do I need and when? And typically, the typical approach is to kind of do this in layers, right? As the demand starts to increase for my applications and services, I'm going to get a bigger box. I'm going to increase more capacity, provision more instances uh, of my database. And what you end up with inevitably is a curve that looks something like this. And we've talked about this. This is kind of AWS and Amazon have talked about this particular uh, aspect of provisioning infrastructure, right? If, you, if you're under-provisioned or if you're over-provisioned, you're paying too much. If you're under-provisioned, your customers aren't happy and you're missing opportunities. So the key is to try and maintain some happy medium between the amount of infrastructure I have deployed behind my applications uh, and, and the amount of capacity that's available for users to actually consume my services. And, and it's a fine balance. It's hard to maintain. <coughs> and, and really, when you scale the relational database, when you start out, and, and in my career, I've scaled many relational databases. I'm sure many of us have. Uh, you start out with a small little instance that, su that supports an application or service. And over time, the demand for that service starts to increase, and so you get a bigger box. And, and this is how you have to actually scale the relational database. And sooner or later, that demand exceeds the capacity of that box, and now I have to get a bigger box. And I have worked with customers over the years that have gone through single instance servers to you know, Oracle rack deployments to large, large scale instances that, that cost you know, half a million dollars to deploy. Uh, and, they, and they go to the MSSQL teams or Oracle teams and they say, you know, how do I, uh, you know, I'm running out of capacity, my latencies are increasing on my queries, and then the answer is get a bigger box, right? And that answer doesn't work at some point, right? They, the scale of the application is too big, I can't get a bigger box, so what do people do? And I've done this before as well, you partition. 
right? We start to partition the database, maybe by time, or by sector, or by category, right? These users go to this instance, those users go to that instance. And there's all kinds of technologies out there that do this for you, right? In Postgres, in MySQL, even in the commercial RDMS platforms, uh, they have technologies to allow you to partition and, and, and spread your queries across multiple instances of the database. But again, you're still dealing with the same problem, right? They're just silos. <laughs> it's collections of silos. And eventually, you're going to overrun the capacity. Now, when you look at the next generation database technologies that are coming out, you look at this new thing, new SQL. It's, it's kind of the idea that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna run this partitioned uh, relational store. <laughs> and we're going to overlay some sort of Paxos algorithm or something that's going to control uh, consistency across these instances. Uh, and and distributed locking. And what you're really starting to look at is another layer of overhead. Okay? And the reality is the relational database was designed to minimize the footprint of data on disk. It was, it's agnostic to every access pattern, right? which means it's optimized for none. There's a lot of CPU overhead involved in building the views that the application layer actually consumes. Now, if I could store the data in that form that the application actually uses it, then I can dumb down the queries to simple selects, and I can scale better. Uh, and, and the idea of new SQL is great. It's going to give us more scale for relational databases, but again, it's going to come at a cost, an excessive cost. And, and, and no SQL is a better solution. <laughs> so no SQL leverages denormalization, right? And, and shards within the applications uh, or, or across a key space to provide horizontal scale that delivers near, nearly unbounded throughput and storage. And we have applications that prove it, both internally and externally. Our customers have deployed massive applications on DynamoDB. Uh, 70, 80 terabyte tables exist on DynamoDB. Uh, internal uh, services, we have over 12,000 services at, at, at AWS. Many, many, many of those services use DynamoDB at great scale. It is really an amazing platform. And NoSQL technology in general is an amazing technology for delivering that type of scaled performance. <laughs> so, how is it all different? And what it comes down to, for those of you who are familiar with uh, the CAP theorem, right? It's uh, often called Brewer's theorem. But the concept here is that we have three kind of uh, points of the triangle. If you're familiar with product management, you know the iron triangle. You get it good, you get it fast, or you get it cheap, right? Well, data has its own iron triangle, and it's called CAP. It's about consistency, availability, and partition tolerance, OK? So <laughs> when we first talk about consistency, uh, this is about uh, that all uh, all clients will always have the same view of the data in the database, right? If I'm connected to the database instance and I read the data, another client reading that same data at the same time will always read the same data. That, that, that means the database is consistent, okay? It's available if all clients that are connected to the database can always read and write, all right? That means that the database is available. And it's partition tolerant if the system functions well when network partitions are inserted within the storage layer. Okay, So there's three aspects here, and you get two. Relational databases have traditionally picked and only have always picked consistency and availability. Right? When they're online, all clients can read and write, and, they, and all clients will always view the same data, and they do it by maintaining that data in a single instance, a big, giant box. All right? When we introduce partition tolerance, you have two choices. You can be consistent and partition tolerant, which means that my users will always be able to have the same view of data, but they might not always be able to read and write when there's a partition inside the data layer, right? I might, not, I might have to restrict writes and let people only read. They might not always be able to have access to the data. Or I can be available in partition tolerant, in which case I say everybody can write everywhere, but I might not always be able to read the same amount of data, or read the same data. Different clients read different data depending on which head node I'm talking to. 
Different NoSQL databases choose different technologies or different approaches to solving the problem. And some NoSQL databases like DynamoDB or Cassandra, actually, or I'm sorry, MongoDB, actually give you the ability to kind of play both sides, right? You can enable secondary reads in DynamoDB. You can enable secondary reads in MongoDB. This gives you kind of an ability to get what you could almost say the AP approach, right? CP is I'm always talking to the primary. My reads and writes are always going through the primary node in a replicated data store, right? Now I'm, now I'm consistent, okay? So this is the game we play to try and determine how we're gonna be able to scale the database, right? Do I scale within a single instance or do I scale across multiple partitions? And then I, that'll tell me where I play and how I scale across multiple partitions is gonna tell me which type of flavor I am. Am I CP or am I AP? Okay, <laughs> so in a relational store, what we're gonna use is a normalized data structure. We're gonna take, in this particular example, I got a product catalog. It has an uh, example of all the common relationships that I typically see uh, in a relational database. Uh, one to many, one to one, uh, many to many relationships. Uh, you can see how many queries, you can imagine how many queries it takes to produce a list of my database, or of my products in my catalog, right? Select star from, interjoin, interjoin through a mapping table to get the many to many's. And, and just think about how much work that CPU is doing to assemble the view that the application needs to uh, consume to, to provide that list of all my products, and, and how many independent queries it actually has to run. At least three, right? I have to get all my books, I have to get all my albums, and I have to get all my videos. And that's gonna occur in three separate queries. So if I use a denormalized data store, it's a different approach, I'm gonna try and flatten that hierarchy. I'm gonna try and push all that data into a set of documents or a set of items uh, or a collections of items that I would put on the table. And now, to get all of my products, I, I say select star from where X equals. Hell, I could say select star from products and I get every product. I want all my books, I say select star from where the type equals book, right? It's a much simpler query. The system does not have to work so hard to produce the view that the application is consuming, therefore I'm using a lot less CPU, which is important because the CPU is the most, important, is the most expensive resource in the data center today, right? 30, 40 years ago, not so much. 30, 40 years ago, the most expensive resource in the data center was actually the disk. So that's why the relational database was actually invented. If you talk to people who are actually dealing with data and generating you know, reports and analytics and things like this back in the 70s, Right, they all used comma-separated value, flat files, grep, awk, sed. This is what people used to process the data. The relational database came along to minimize the amount of storage that those processes were consuming. Right? <laughs> 40 years later, it's the flip side. The CPU is the most expensive resource. The storage is the cheapest thing in the data center. So why would I use a technology that is optimizing the cheapest resource in the data center and, and making me pay for the most expensive thing, right? I actually wanna go the other way. I want, I want queries that are simple queries. I don't want queries that are complex, okay? So this is where NoSQL really starts to excel. <laughs> so, when you scale a NoSQL database, it's about adding capacity incrementally. It's not about having to get a bigger box, right? You make a bigger array of instances, right? So you start off with one instance, you add some more capacity by adding another instance. You add additional capacity by adding more instances, but as I do this, right, I am not throwing away the old boxes. I'm expanding the new, and by adding additional boxes. Now, as, as you do this underneath the covers, 
what's going on is there's a replication process, right? I add new instances into this array. What I'm doing is I'm adding a new shard to my cluster, and that shard now is going to give me additional capacity, but it's only going to give me additional capacity when the items are distributed evenly across from the other shards. So there's this background process that's happening that's replicating the data, okay? This is important when you get into actually managing this yourself because if you want to deploy NoSQL databases, you need to understand what is the background consumption that you're going to occur in managing the system, okay? I have customers that have deployed, you know, MongoDB clusters that literally can't add capacity for weeks because it takes that long to replicate from all of the shards, right? We have similar issues in DynamoDB. We have to deal with that replication, but as a managed service, it's something we do for you. It's not something you have to worry about. You don't have to provision extra capacity because I'm gonna be adding a shard in six months, right? We kind of do that. We take care of all of that. <laughs> anyway, so when do I use NoSQL over uh, SQL? What it, what it comes down to is if I understand the access patterns of the application, then I'm gonna be way better off using a denormalized data store that stores the data in the way the application actually uses it. So OLTP applications are great because they always use the same data, they'll use the data the same way all the time. So I'm building an application and I know it's an OLTP app and every time somebody hits the order button, they're gonna commit those items, they're gonna commit that purchase, they're gonna do whatever, right? Then a NoSQL database is great. Now if it's a ad hoc queries that I'm looking for, BI analytics, OLAP workloads, uh, you know, the type of things that I don't know how people are gonna use this data, then maybe an SQL database might be a better store for you. And again, a couple options here, you can even look at NoSQL to back the OLAP workloads, but it's kinda like the data lake. We push this stuff out there, we run an EMR cluster or some MapReduce engine on top of this thing. Maybe we load some Hive or Spark or, or, or Presto library on top of that, and we can run SQL queries but we're, and we're storing the data in a NoSQL database, but those are kind of long-running queries. If I need real-time ad hoc queries, SQL is a good solution for you, but it's not gonna scale as well as something like a NoSQL database, certainly. All right, so Amazon DynamoDB, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's a managed NoSQL database service. This is one of the biggest value points uh, of the service. Um, you know, anyone who's tried to manage NoSQL at scale knows how difficult it is to keep these things up and running, right? You've got a whole bunch of servers, uh, <coughs> you've got a bunch of OS patching, you've got a bunch of database patching, all kinds of stuff you have to worry about, and then when hardware starts failing, I have to re-replicate, I have to administrate and operate this IT infrastructure that is not necessarily core to my business, and at scale, this becomes very complex. I mean, it's one thing when I'm running a single replica set, it's another thing entirely when I'm running 15 shards, right? Uh, so, you know, when you think about the ability to actually offload all the management of all of that infrastructure, because NoSQL databases, you know, they're, they're great, they scale fantastically, but there's a lot of work that goes into it, and it's not something that's easy. So if you don't actually need to scale, then I would actually say, let's, let's, let's use a relational store, you get a lot more flexibility out of it. And a lot of people talk about NoSQL as if it's a very flexible data store, and it is but it also requires a lot of rigidity, right, in the data structure. So in order to be effective, uh, it, you can't really run ad hoc queries. I can only run these, these access patterns that I actually understand and know. So if I don't have, if I need to, if I need to uh, you know, run patterns that are more ad hoc, you know, I wanna run uh, a relational store. Uh, anyway, so 
DynamoDB is fast and consistent and it scales designed uh, to deliver uh, a high performance for any workload, uh, scales independently for reads and writes, and you provision capacity independently for reads and writes, uh, fully integrated access control and fine-grained so at the item level, at the table level, and at the attribute level. I can create users and, ex and assign permissions to those users uh, that would be able to read only parts of the items, right? So I could have, like, say, an order entry application with an HR overlay, and only my HR users would see the extended metadata that's associated with the HR functions, right? Uh, and, and order entry applications would see only uh, OE-style attributes. So one thing about NoSQL and the way that we actually distribute data in NoSQL and all NoSQL databases use this same approach is there's some sort of partition key, shard key, some attribute that's a mandatory attribute that must be provided in the item. It's the only mandatory attribute. It uniquely identifies the item. And what we're going to do is we're going to hash that attribute value and create this unordered hash index and lay these items out across this arbitrary key space. Now, once we've done this, as you add capacity or you increase the storage uh, and add more items into the table, we're going to start splitting that thing up across physical boxes. Okay, so this is how DynamoDB scales. This is how MongoDB scales. This is how Cassandra scales. This is how NoSQL in general scales. All NoSQL technology shares this same uh, approach to scaling. You create an arbitrary key space. You lay the items out across that key space, and you chop it up and put it out onto different physical boxes to be able to scale up. Uh, partitions are three-way replicated in DynamoDB. In most NoSQL databases, there's some sort of replication uh, to ensure durability of the data. In DynamoDB, they're three-way replicated across three AZs. Every region in uh, AWS has at least three AZs, whether you see them or not. And it's because DynamoDB is a tier zero service. No other service deploys without it. So we can't, uh, no region stands up without it. So we can't, uh, and DynamoDB requires three-way replication. So even if you're only seeing one AZ, like in some of our new regions, like in China, for a while there was only one AZ, there's really three, but there's, that's, for the, that's for the backplane infrastructure that we run things like DynamoDB in. Uh, and that replication is automatic. It's nothing you need to enable. When you define a table, it's just going to get replicated across those three AZs. Now, behind the scenes, and this is where things start to get really interesting and start to get really different uh, when you look at DynamoDB. Behind the scenes, we run a, a, a basically a massively multi-tenant infrastructure. All right? We have storage nodes and request routers and control plane infrastructure, and it's all basically serving up requests for many, many, many customers. Right? So when you deploy DynamoDB tables, we don't roll out dedicated infrastructure for you. We actually claim capacity on existing infrastructure. And what we're doing is we're taking your table and your data and we're chopping it up into all these partitions and we're spreading it out all over this infrastructure and we're sharing that infrastructure with other people's tables, right? Might be yours, might be other customers. These things are logically isolated. Nobody can touch anybody else's tables, right? Your data is completely and totally isolated from other users. The interesting thing here is that we don't take full servers and chunk them up and put them into your table space, right? That would be expensive. And many of our competitors, this is what they do. I mean, the minimum you know, bar to enter on, on some of our competitors' products is very high, and it's because really they're taking dedicated servers and they're throwing them into that, you know, out there for you. You could think of these things as EC2 instances. In DynamoDB, our partitions are really small, okay? They're small for a lot of reasons. 
bottom line is you, every single partition you, you have on your table is going to give you 1,000 WCUs or 3,000 RCUs. These are read and write capacity units uh, or some mix of those two and up to 10 gigabytes of storage. Now, why do we do this? Because we want to scale and we want to scale fast. And that means that I can't spend my time replicating data out of these partitions. If I need to split these partitions, I don't want to have to copy a petabyte of data, right? I copy five gigabytes of data and I've split the partition. So it happens really fast. And I've seen this in real time. It's an amazing thing to watch a table go from two to four to eight partitions in, in minutes and be able to scale from you know, 2,000 uh, know, WCU peak burst to 8,400% capacity increase in minutes. Who does that? What database can do that? There's only one in the world, right? It's DynamoDB. <laughs> All right, so when you scale DynamoDB, it looks like this. It doesn't look like get a bigger box, get a bigger box. And when your load goes away, wow, I'm stuck with this big box, <laughs> right? When DynamoDB, when the load goes away, you can dial it down. And when the load comes in, you can dial it up. And it happens really fast, okay? I mean, literally, I sat there on Cyber Monday in the war room. I watched these tables going, you know, ballistic. And I was watching the peak rush. Uh, you know, we monitored over 2,000 tables. I run the DynamoDB Black Belt team. We monitored over 2,000 DynamoDB tables for uh, what we call the Amazon CDO. That's our commercial, digital, and other uh, development teams, right, through Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And I'm watching the tables go into a hot state, throttling, the provision capacity throttling, uh, peak throughput throttling, burst throttling, and I'm looking at the teams, I'm saying increase the capacity on these tables, split these tables, we need to increase your burst capacity, and I'm watching all of this happen in real time. Dozens of instances, right? Things that would take businesses down, and we're able to withstand this because we have this dynamic backplane that can increase capacity on the fly uh, in, in such an amazing way. All right, so what you end up with with this system now is something that's highly exact. You do not have to operate in whole server increments anymore. You get capacity fast, right? It's quick. You know, in minutes, you're going to have the additional capacity you need, right? You're going to have some account level limits. Those are soft limits. There's table level limits. Again, soft limits. If you, if you talk to our support teams and let us know how much capacity you need, we'll dial you right up, right? And you can claim any amount of capacity that you need. We just need to know. Right? You're going you're to deploy with a certain amount. Anything within that is, is available to you. Above that, just let us know. <laughs> Again, fully elastic, up and down, whenever you need this thing to go. Uh, it, it, you, know, you just set it up. You, know, you can dial it up and dial it down uh, both manually and automatically. We have some great technology for you there we'll talk about in a few minutes. But what this allows you to do is maximize your application's availability. Minimize your cost, right? No downtime. I mean, we've got great examples of applications. I've got an application, it's a survey form processing application we wrote for Amazon's, uh, for AWS professional services in the SA team. Uh, when you interact with us, you're going to get an email. At the bottom of that email will be a little link. It says, uh, what did you think of this interaction? When you click that link, it pulls down a web form out of an S3 bucket. If you post that form, it hits API Gateway. API Gateway calls Lambda. Lambda processes the form and shoves the results into DynamoDB, notifies the manager the survey came in. This app runs... It, we host it's three cents a month, right? I mean, how many surveys do we process? Maybe a couple hundred a month. But the reality is if a million users showed up tomorrow, all I need to do is dial up the capacity on that DynamoDB table and I can support them. So you know, what other kind of technology can give you that kind of flexibility, right? With the, when you combine serverless with Dynamo, it is amazing what the possibilities are. So anyways. Results, hundreds of thousands of customers, millions of requests per second. I think on Prime Day, we peaked around 34.5 million requests per second. 
uh, you know, across regions. We had uh, <laughs> hundreds of billions of items we store on our tables, petabytes of storage, uh, literally. There's nothing that operates at the scale of DynamoDB. It's an incredible system when you really get to look at it. There's nothing, uh, nobody in the world has deployed anything like this. So, let's get into adaptive capacity. Uh, you know, we want adaptive capacity because when you get capacity planning right, right, nobody cares. But when it's wrong, boy, everybody, everybody's on the phone. So we don't want that. We want, we want things to be able to scale up and scale down. So let's talk about how that works with DynamoDB. When you first deploy a table, in this particular example, we're going to deploy a table that has 500 WCUs, 1,500 RCUs. That's going to give us a single partition. Okay, that single partition sitting there, it's got those partition level limits. Now, those partition level limits are actually soft limits. All right, every table in DynamoDB gets five minutes of, of burst capacity, what we call is unused capacity for, for, and it's available for burst. So let's say this table sat there for five minutes and it was unused. Uh, it would end up with, uh, a, a, the, with a 450 1,000 uh, uh, RCUs and 150,000 WCUs sitting in its burst bucket available for use. Now, since it has only one partition, a single partition can give me up to 1,000 WCUs or 3,000 RCUs. So the burst capacity of this table is up to five minutes of sustained traffic at 1,000 WCUs and 3,000 RCUs because it's a single partition. So you look at that, take that five minutes of unused capacity. Here's my burst bucket add the capacity that I have provisioned. How long does it take me to drain my burst bucket based on how many partitions I have on my table? In this particular case, five minutes, right? So let's say we go along, we start to add more data to the table. We get up over 10 gigabytes, right? 10 gigabytes partition splits. We start to see some interesting things happen. Now we have two partitions. So we haven't increased our throughput at all, we have the same amount of throughput. So that throughput is actually evenly divided across the two partitions and it's put there. So now these partitions, each one has a soft limit at 250 WCUs and 750 RCUs. But what's interesting here is I've actually doubled my burst capacity, right? My burst throughput capacity. Since I now have two partitions and then each one of those can give me up to 1,000 WCUs or, or, or 3,000 RCUs, the burst throughput of the table is increased from 1,000 to 2,000 WCUs and from 3,000 to 6,000 RCUs Right? And now I can get up to 100 seconds instead of five minutes because I'm bursting at a higher rate. I'll drain my burst bucket faster. I can get up to 100 seconds of, uh, of, of WCU or RCU burst. All right? So pretty straightforward. The more partitions you have, the higher the burst throughput capacity of the table. Right? I always have five minutes of unused capacity. So we go on, we split, add more data. Again, we start to dilute. We split again. We add more data. We start to dilute. Right? And so what's happening is you can see these partition level soft limits, they're kind of falling, right? And so you say, well, gee, what happens if I get over, if I don't have a fully evenly distributed load, right? I mean, now I'm split out to four partitions, that's great. I have a really, really hot table that can deliver a lot of capacity on burst, but, you know, I mean, what happens if I actually need one to deliver more than 125 WCU and I'm out of burst, right? So in this particular case, what ends up happening? Uh, we'll talk about, let's just talk about a, work, a real scenario. So in this particular application, let's say you're hired by the Statistics Canada Bureau to build a census application. And you decide that you're going to use the following schema for that application. You're going to partition on the province. You're going to uh, sort on the user's ID. So that's great. Seems pretty even, no problem. Lots of provinces in Canada, lots of people live in Canada. What you didn't really realize when you made that choice is that 50% of people 
in Canada actually live below the latitude of Seattle, okay? So it's kind of a very uneven distribution of population, right? We have one or two provinces in Canada that actually have all the people. Nobody else has any people. So when you start to load the data into the table, let's say we provision this table out there at 100 WCUs, and we start to take our census data, we're soft limited out at 25 per partition, and boy, we're loading data into that Ontario and Quebec, uh, you know, partition really, really hot, and, and, it's, and it's getting too hot. So what actually starts to happen in DynamoDB? So this is a real table, a real situation. You know, we just took this out of the, uh, you know, the, the uh, from CloudWatch, but the, what happens is you're gonna see that soft limit start to be exceeded. And at that point, there might be a little bit of throttling on the table, because we're exceeding the soft limit, and we've exceeded the burst bucket, and now we're trying to figure out, does this table actually need some additional throughput? Once we detect that this soft limit is a sustained burst, it's not just a transient condition, we're gonna enable what we call adaptive throughput on the table. That then will cause all of those soft limits to be eliminated to a certain extent, the read and write ratios will be increased on those particular table partitions, and they will be able to effectively borrow capacity from their unused partitions. All right, what they're really doing is they're using background capacity that's on the storage node they're deployed on. Right, we don't want to enable this on every table by default because we have to actually orchestrate these workloads somewhat to make sure that we have the capacity available to, to, to resolve these burst requests, right, these adaptive throughput requests, but when we see tables that have this condition, we will put them into that adaptive throughput mode, which allows them to borrow their capacity. You can see how that now causes that nice even slope uh, for the demand on the table. So if we look at the per partition throughput while this is happening, uh, you can see very clearly what's happening. So each one of these little lines on that graph is one of the partitions on this table. That red line is the 25 writes per partition. That's the soft limit. We can see that the, the Ontario partition is starting to flame beyond 25 writes uh, you know, per partition. So we see a sustained throttling situation. And at some point, adaptive throughput is enabled. And now all of a sudden, that partition can start to borrow from the other, other partitions. Now, it's not gonna give you more than what you have allocated on the table, right? If you, you're only gonna get adaptive throughput if there's capacity left in your, on your table. If you provision 100 WCUs and you're using 100 WCUs, uh, it won't matter you know, what partition is too hot. You're just not gonna get any more. But if you have capacity on the table, you're not gonna get throttled for, for, you know, uh, <laughs> for sustained periods. You're gonna get adaptive throughput enabled and those partitions are gonna be able to now start to borrow from each other. Uh, so this is great. I mean, to tell you the truth, this helped a lot of tables on Prime Day. Over 2,800 Amazon tables would have throttled on Prime Day. And we have had tens of thousands of customer tables that have benefited from this, right? This got turned on about six months ago. Customers didn't even know it was being turned on. So there are customers that, that previously would have been throttling based on these partition level limits who have been benefiting from adaptive throughput for months they don't even know because the tables aren't even throttling. It's, 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 again, this is the evolution of our platform. We saw the way people use the technology and we're improving the way the technology performs uh, to meet the requirements of our users. All right, so everybody wants a hands-off experience, right? Uh, I can't wait for this. I want a fully automated car. I don't want to drive my car anymore. I'm tired of it. Uh, but we give you that hands-off experience for DynamoDB, 
right? I mean, there's a technology we have out there called auto-scaling, some of you may be familiar with. Uh, <laughs> there was a library around for many years. This is now an integrated part of the platform that you can enable. Uh, and, and it's a really cool you know, solution because it allows you to eliminate that, uh, that, that let's provision for peak type of mindset, right? What you do with auto-scaling is you set a high water mark and a low water mark, uh, at which point the system will increase or decrease capacity based on the load. Uh, and you, know, you can set those thresholds at, at a low level, at hey, at 20%, give them double my load because I'm going to expect the rush. Or hey, I have a soft curve that I know, and so don't, don't increase to 70 till 70% consumption. It's all up to you. Uh, but you can see the chart on the left here. You've got a table that in the, in the past would be provisioned for peak capacity, and all that area under the line, all that white space, that's just wasted money. Okay? And then when you look at the chart on the right with auto scaling enabled, now all of a sudden you've got provision throughput that is that's following the demand. And if you took the area under, the, under that red line, you know, all the white space, it's going to be a heck of a lot less uh, than the area on the left. So you're going to save a lot by being able to do this. Now, again, watching this happen, now the way I, I actually advise teams on Prime Day uh, and, and on Cyber Monday and Black Friday was to use kind of auto-scaling as the insurance policy, right? You set your floor at the highest you expect, at my peak expected level, because, heck, we know the traffic's coming, so why do, I, why do I want to stand on the train tracks and stare down the train and make sure I can jump off fast enough, right? I mean, we want to, we, we want, if I know the train is coming, then let's make sure it's got room, right? So I, I tell the teams to provision auto-scaling at the high level and use it if you get an unexpected burst or demand, right? And then auto-scaling can kick in and increase additional capacity over the top. Now, we had three teams do that, and one team on Prime Day was huge, this was the, you know, the team that manages the deal box on the front of the, of the, of the web page, right? What are the hot current deals? Well, you know, they got, they got 300% uh, demand, re you know, they, they needed 300% capacity of what they expected. Uh, you know, they, they'd provisioned their auto scaling out there and, and the ability of the system to respond to that was actually just incredible to watch in real time. Within 10 minutes, these guys had requested double the capacity. It wasn't enough. They requested another 50% of the capacity on top of that. And within 20 minutes, that table went from 100,000 RCUs to 300,000 RCUs uh, and, and in real time. So you just can't do that with a regular database. Right? If I'm deployed with a MongoDB cluster or a Cassandra cluster, oh my gosh, I'm just going to—I'm stuck for the duration, right? That's as much as I'm getting, and there is no more because even if I added a shard, I'm actually going to be not doing myself any favors because when you add the shard to a traditional NoSQL database, what happens? The throughput goes down until that shard is replicated, right? I'm actually consuming capacity from the cluster to replicate the data to the new shard. And I have seen customers that are under load if they, don't, if they get it too, if, they, if, they, if they, run the, they run too close to the ragged edge and they let the utilization of their cluster get too high, then the replication will fail, right? Because the, the replication log will roll before the cluster can actually get caught up. And at that point, it has to start over again. So I have seen customers that have to go into an API throttling stage or state because they can't let the database get beyond 70 or 80% utilization because the replication lag starts to crush them and, they have, and they'll never get another shard, right? So literally, customers now starting to add shards at 50% total capacity, they just start adding shards because they know in two or three weeks when it's available, they're going to need it, okay? So if that's the game you want to play, that's okay, but I think that what you really want is something that's going to be adaptive, reactive, 
and, and meet the needs of your, you know, your applications in a very elastic way. And there's very few services out there that can do that. DynamoDB does it in a very, very effective way. And many customers rely on it. I mean, big customers, right? I mean, you see the logos on here. Major League Baseball, Advanced Media. These guys do the stat cast, right? If you're familiar, if you're a baseball fan, you ever watch some of those replays, and it shows, you know, uh, here was his acceleration. Here's how fast he was running. Here was the shortest distance to the ball. Here's the path he took and how long it took. All that data is being processed on AWS infrastructure. It's being stored in DynamoDB. And again, a great use case for auto-scaling, right? The ability to, when the games are playing, they need it. When the games aren't playing, they don't need it. So why pay for it, right? And that's, uh, you know, they save a lot of customers, saving a lot of money that way. Uh, you know, Expedia, uh, Canon, Under Armour, BMW, you name it. I mean, there's a, they're just, and this is just a sampling of the logos, right? We have thousands and thousands and thousands of customers using DynamoDB in huge ways. Um, so <clears throat> next feature we could talk a little bit about, which is really cool, is TTL. Um, you know, this gives you the ability to kind of scale your capacity down automatically. Uh, and, you know, so as you start to increase, you know, or process data against the table in many applications, the data might get stale. Maybe it's event data that after a week or two weeks I really don't care about anymore. I want that data to clear off the table. So maybe when I insert the items on the table, what I'm going to do is add a little attribute called TTL. It's going to have a timestamp in there. When that timestamp is expired, there's a sweeper that comes along. He's got to clear those items off the table for you. Uh, so the nice thing about this is it can really reduce your costs, right? I mean, why store all that data on the table if I don't need it? TTL items are going to show up on what we call the DynamoDB stream. Uh, stream is like the running change log or the, of write operations against the table. So when a TTL delete occurs, that item is going to actually show up on the DynamoDB stream, and it can be processed by a Lambda function. So it'll read the item, it's gonna say, hey, this was a system delete, that indicates it was a TTL operation to clean that thing off the table, and you can decide I wanna archive this, maybe I wanna put it on a cold table, uh, or whatever you wanna do with that data. Uh, but basically, get it off the table because you don't wanna store it unless you're actually gonna use it. Uh, and, and customers have really benefited from this, right? We had Tune was one customer purged 85 terabytes of data just by enabling TTL. And they ran a table scan, added that TTL attribute to all of their items when we, when the feature, and they actually did that, I think, well before the feature was delivered. And then when the feature was actually enabled in the regions where they had those tables, it just picked up that TTL attribute and swept off those items. 85 terabytes saved $200,000 a year. <coughs> uh, CloudWatch, our internal service for monitoring all of our AWS services, uh, reduced overall provision throughput by 75%. And the reason why was because they were actually using some inefficient queries. Uh, they were querying using filter conditions. Uh, filter conditions cause you to read all of the items in a given partition and then filter the items only that match. Well, when their partitions got big with a bunch of stale data, they were reading a whole bunch of data they didn't care about, and then they were applying a filter condition to knock them out. And so they kept on increasing capacity, increasing capacity. Finally, they realized what was going on. They enabled TTL, reduced their provision throughput by 75%. Now, they're going to save millions of dollars right, for Amazon uh, over the next year or two. Uh, so, I mean, huge uh, features that allow you to kind of dynamically scale the database both up and down. Uh, and the bottom line is, when you get into, you know, managing databases, it's not easy. Anyone who's done it knows it's not easy. You've got servers, right? Servers need to be, you know, you've got capacity planning behind that infrastructure. You've got provisioning. You have OS patches. You've got monitoring of that infrastructure. You know, I've, I've talked to customers that have entire IT organizations dedicated to managing their database clusters. They're not in the business 
of managing database clusters. I mean, in some cases, these guys are in some of the most, you know, uh, non-technical industries, yet they're having to maintain a very high level of technical skills in IT operations to maintain this infrastructure. So don't do it. Uh, you know, you've got database, uh, you know, software, uh, upgrades, security patches, uh, scaling issues, right? Monitoring, performance tuning, re-replication. You know, I mean, you deploy all this infrastructure. When you've got 15 shards out there and you've got all these servers running, anytime anything fails, it's like, uh-oh, step up a new server, step down that secondary, re-replicate. This is a constant process, right? That replication steals capacity. And this is really one of the things that's important about DynamoDB is you don't need to allocate any of that capacity, right? We, it's all priced in. You turn on the table, you say, here's how much capacity I want, and you're going to get 100% of that capacity for your app. You're not going to have to burn any of that capacity, take care of background management, not any replication, none of that stuff is your responsibility. That's all our responsibility, and that's what we do. You tell us what you need for your application, and it makes it so nice because capacity planning is reduced to simple math. If you come to my DAT 403 session, I go through you know, some you know, design patterns on write sharding, and, and I talk about you know, how to determine how many partitions I need to be able to meet the, 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 the query load that I'm putting against uh, these partition keys, and, and it comes down to it's very simple math, right? How many requests per second? How big are my items? Right? How, how many am I putting in a single partition? Okay, I mean, it's, it's very simple math versus this. This is complex, and you're gonna do all this yourself, and you're gonna do it with zero downtime, right? No, you're not, okay? <laughs> Most organizations never achieve this. We have, and, and, and it's because we operate at a scale that's well beyond what most people would ever even dream of operating. If you look at Amazon's uh, DynamoDB you know, processing plane, uh, there's not an enterprise in this world that, that matches what we have deployed, and, and it serves what we serve. Petabytes of data, millions of requests per second. Uh, it's a fully managed, fully adaptive database service. And, and now with the, with the features that we've just released, I mean, this thing is, is really ready for prime time. Uh, you know, the, 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 the scalability, the adaptive nature, the elasticity of the system, uh, you're just not, it's, it's not, I, I've looked at everything. I've worked at other NoSQL technology providers. There's nothing in the world that matches the performance and the capabilities of the system, and I would recommend that you try it. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic system. Uh, all right, I know we're a little ahead of time here, but I don't think I've got much more con uh, content for you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to come listen to me if you have any questions. Uh, step up to the microphone and fire away. Uh, what advice do you have uh, for folks who end up in a situation where scaling up causes partition splits, mm -hmm. and then uh, they want to scale back down to where they were at the table level, but yep. they have less capacity per partition at that yeah, point? Yeah, so this is exactly why we've, we've, imp we've introduced adaptive throughput, right? So those, those partition level limits now, it's what I've referred to in the presentation as soft limits. They're no longer the hard limits they used to be. These are, uh, so now what you can do is you can scale your, I wouldn't say scale out and split without even thinking about it, right? We don't want those partition level limits to drop down to like one RCU, right? Uh, but we don't need to be so worried about those partition level limits dropping because with adaptive throughput, if the workload starts to flame above the 
the limit, the soft limit, you're going to borrow from your other partition. So as long as you're below your table capacity, you should be okay. And that kicks in after about 10 yeah, minutes? It takes about it? five minutes for five? it to be enabled. Yeah, okay. yeah. We need to see one CloudWatch cycle, and then it'll go ahead and kick it on. And then what starts happening is it starts adjusting the ratio. Right, it'll start seeing that, okay, you need one, when you, maybe you need 1.1 to 1 ratio, now I need 1.2 and so on and so forth. It'll increase all the way to 3,000 to 1, but uh, that would mean that you'd have a really, really diluted partition, so we want to avoid that situation. So. Cool. Uh, just curious, for the... Do you drop the partition? I'm sorry? Oh, no, we don't, we, do, we don't ever reduce the number of partitions. But they, so that was the question. The question was, when we scale back down, do we reduce the number of partitions? No, we keep the number of partitions the same. The soft limits get reduced. And then adaptive throughput's going to kick in faster. That's what ends up happening. So, okay. Just curious, for the prime day, for the prime day, the millions requests per second, how many uh, equivalent hardware are you doing uh, needed to support that kind of... I, I'm sorry, I'm not understanding the question. So the prime day, for the prime day, that kind of a big, huge amount of uh, throughput, uh, how much uh, hardware we're talking about to support that kind of oh, throughput? Oh, how much hardware? Yeah, just um, I mean, to, to the customer, it's, a, it's an abstract concept, right? You just say, I need X RCU, X WCU. But for WCU. your own operation to support the, that kind of throughput? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea how much hardware it takes to support a million RCUs or a million WCUs. That would probably be a better question for the backplane <laughs> engineers. But right, so uh, I like I said, for, for, from the customer's perspective, that's just not something that you need to be aware of, right? Because you're just getting a bunch of 10 gigabyte partitions that can do 1K RCU or 1K WCU and 3K RCU. So if you need a million, divide by... Right, 1K, and that's how many write partitions you're going to get. So, Thank you. cool. Hi. Um, I think we've got some questions over there. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, back in engineer at Tinder, uh, our access pattern is very, uh, some people swipe a lot more than others. Um, and uh, so we get a lot of hot charting, right? Um, my question is, how quickly does adaptive capacity kick in when you're getting throttled on a shard? Okay, so what's going to end up happening with adaptive throughput is the first time it's enabled, it's never going to get turned off, right, unless your workflow access pattern completely changes. So if you're, uh, if you're seeing hot keys, there's a couple things that could be happening. We probably want to talk, actually, uh, is, uh, you know, it could be that you're seeing a peak burst uh, through uh, uh, throttling, which would mean you're asking more than 1,000 WCUs or 3,000 RCUs per second per partition. If that's happening, then there's no, all bets are off. Adaptive throughput's not going to help you. And maybe what we need to do is actually split your table and give you more partitions. Like I talked about how you get more throughput. So right. I'd want to know, are you burst throttling? Uh, then I would want to look at, if you're not burst throttling, then uh, are you hot keying, right? Uh, I would almost, I would wonder, I would say with your use case, it'd be hard to see how you'd be hot keying, but I want to understand your access patterns a little better. Uh, bottom line is with adaptive throughput, five minutes to turn it on, it's going to start load leveling you. It'll never turn off. It'll go all the way down to one, which is effectively turned off, uh, but it's always going to be watching your table at that point, and so it would be able to kick on really fast. When you say split the table, do you mean actually two separate table no, definitions? No, I mean when I say split the table, I mean double the number of partitions. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yes, okay. to give you, a, give you more burst throughput. Right. What, we, what we're currently doing is we just increase the provision throughput by like 20 or 30 percent higher right. than our consumed capacity. Okay. It ends up costing us more money, though. Yeah, so, so, so now, and are you running, generally speaking, are you running at 70, 80% consumed capacity? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so now that's, that's, that's a pretty good chunk, and I always tell people at that, at that level, you're going to start seeing random and spurious throttling, right? Because, you, you know, it's across the key space, and it could be that this slight imbalance of request is starting to hit this partition a little bit more than this partition. So my, my bet would be your peak throttling. Uh, 
you know, and, and what we'd want to do is we do want to get the capacity bump because at 70, 80 percent, uh, it's just at that level where you're going to see spurious throttling. Now, you could instrument the application to do a back off retry, right? Yeah, yeah, so, we do that. Okay. And that should resolve. I would imagine that should be resolving most of your, your issues. Our, our right? error rate is really low. It's okay. more the cost. Okay. Yeah, no, I get you. So, um, you know what? You, you probably want to do, yeah, you, you guys have enterprise support. I'd say let's get a, a consultation set up with the, uh, with the specialist SA team. I know, I think we've got an EBC with your team, actually. We do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, if you maybe talk to, I think Sean Shriver might be the one who's going to be in that. So, go ahead and, add, and ask this question of him. And if you need to, I'm happy to engage as well. I run the Black Belt team, so we can, we can sit down and talk with your team about how you're using it and see maybe there's a better access pattern. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, My name is Sai. I have a question. Um, so, if the latency for reads is, uh, is going to remain constant, um, I'm, just, I'm just thinking uh, uh, how does it compare with, say, something like elastic cache? Can we, can we remove elastic cache and rely completely on DynamoDB okay. because I get, sure. I get durability for free? Sure. So, uh, first off, I would say now with, uh, with the introduction of DAX, which is DynamoDB Accelerator, it's a fully integrated front-end distributed cache for DynamoDB, I would stay away from Elastic Cache because that's kind of side cache implementation that you have to manage, right? So, DynamoDB DAX, if it's available in the regions that you're deployed, I believe it's available, should be available in all regions now. You might want to verify that. Um, I would just go with that as your caching front end. Uh, that's going to give you sub one millisecond latency, and then you won't have to worry about cache population, right? Because all your reads and writes are going to go through that cache instance. Uh, with Elastic Cache, the cache sits on the side, and what you do is you hit the cache. If it's not there, I go read the table, and then I have to stick it in the cache, right? With DAX, I just read, the, I read DAX. If it's not there, DAX goes and gets it. So it's a much better solution than Elastic Cache. Even, even with the consistent uh, reads? Uh, okay, now if you're looking for full consistency, then there's a couple of scenarios, right? If you've got a single DAX head node and all reads and writes are going through the DAX head node, then you're guaranteed consistency on your item writes. Uh, now, query result sets are cached independently, so you want to set the TTL for your query results very short. Um, if you need full read consistency and you have a distributed and you have too much data sitting in a single DAX instance and you have to run distributed, then uh, if, what's your latency requirement? Do you need sub one millisecond or is low single digit millisecond okay? Single digit millisecond. Okay, then you don't even need cache. I just go hit the table because if you if, by by default, uh, DynamoDB operates in. Uh, uh, what eventual consistency in eventual consistent reads, but you can turn on consistent reads once you turn that on It's going to double your read cost, but it's going to give you a consistent read and it's give you a low single digit millisecond response time on average So I would go with that. Thank you Okay, okay so you mentioned that DynamoDB is a table is a database that can be both CP and AP Mm -hmm. So can you give some more information on Sure. So it was kind of a similar discussion, right? So by default, a DynamoDB is, well, it's architected to be a CP system, right? So it means that all writes go to the primary. They're going to get replicated to a secondary before they are going to be acknowledged to the client. And, and, and you know, in the, uh, the default read condition would be to read from secondary. Okay, that's what gives it kind of an AP flavor, but it's not really AP. It's still CP because all rights, it's a single master, right? So all, all rights go to the single primary in the, within the region. Now, a, a technology like Cassandra, okay, that's true AP because it's, it's, it's headless master master, right? There's, there's, no, there's no single master node that all the clients must talk to. I can write to any node in a Cassandra ring. Right now, there's different conditions around that. Right, I might give a quorum. Right, whatnot. But uh, bottom line is, any any node in a Cassandra cluster can take the right. So that's mm. what makes it AP. Right, because okay. if they, if there's a partition between the nodes, then I have a client talking to node A, a client talking to node B, and there's a partition. Well, guess what? They're both going to be able to read and write. So it's available, 
and it's partition tolerant, but it's not going to be consistent, uh, right? Because okay. those two clients, once they start writing the data, they ain't reading the same data no more, right? Uh -huh. So that's what makes it AP versus CP. Now, Dynamo can never be truly AP, and neither could, or, or, and neither could Mongo, right? Uh -huh. Now, when you get global tables, global tables is like global master master. Now, all of a sudden, Dynamo can start talking about being an, an AP system because I can have a right to region A and a right to region B that could occur on two different tables and then they're going to have to resolve at some point. So to summarize, basically, you always write to, to the master shards and Yeah, it, always... within the region, the writes are always going to the primary of the replica. And you read from every shard. You can read from any one. Now, you, know, you can, when you enable EC reads, you read from secondaries only. There's two secondaries. When you enable consistent reads, you read only from the primary. There's one primary. That's why EC reads are half the cost, because I got twice the read capacity. Okay, thanks. Cool. Uh, do you always uh, split partitions on equal halves in terms of provision throughput? Do we always, I'm sorry, do we always? Split partitions Oh, do we always split halves? them equally? Um, well, there's two ways partitions split on DynamoDB. One is by capacity and one is by size. When a partition splits by size, it's going to be the one that grew too big. All right, so this one's bigger than 10 gigabytes. And it's not, there's no hard line at 10 gig. It actually, there's a hard line at 20. So on the system, on the back plane, we're going to decide somewhere between 10 and 20 gigabytes, this guy's got to split. When it gets to 20, it's going to split, okay? Uh, <clears throat> so that's, that's one way that it splits. The other way it splits is by, is by capacity. So when you dial up the capacity and you provision the table, there's a little bit of math we go through to figure out how many partitions you're going to get initially. When you dial the capacity beyond that point, we don't really know how to allocate it, so what we do is we just double the number of partitions and, and divide the capacity that you've allocated across those partitions and call that the new soft limit. So if I have 10 partitions on my table, let's say I deploy the table with 10,000 WCUs, it's got 10 partitions, and I provision to 11,000, it's going to end up splitting to, to 20 partitions and dividing 11,000 WCUs across those 20 partitions. Okay, so that's why that partition level throughput used to be really deadly, right? Because you really needed to know when you, when you created the table what your maximum throughput would ever be, because if you ever dialed it up above that, oh boy, you could have your partition level limits in a heartbeat and not know it, right? But now with adaptive throughput, not so painful. I actually have been recommending people to split their tables for burst throughput capacity quite frequently lately, and it's been awesome because I, I mean I've been very closely watching all of those tables to make sure that I'm not getting them into a bad state, right? Because you know it's not something I was normally recommending, and now I am, and it's been great to watch how the system's performed with it. I just see those read-write ratios increase on those tables. Adaptive throughput comes through, and, and now they've doubled their burst capacity, and it doesn't even matter that they've got a lower soft limit on the table, on the partition level. So that's, that's kind of where you go with that. All right, just to clarify, like in, in the past, in the given point if ta on, of time, mm -hmm. all partitions had always the same provision net throughput? Not always. So when they split by size, they're going to, well, again, with adaptive throughput, your statement is generally accurate. Absolutely. Because adaptive throughput will compensate for any partition that is lower than the others. But the soft limits may vary, all right, depending on what we call the split generation of the partition. If all the split generations are even or are the same, they're going to have the same partition level throughput. If the split generations are different, meaning these split by size, then these split by capacity. You see what I'm saying? The ones that split by size, well, they're going to take the, the limit that came from the parent, and they're going to divide it between the two. Okay. Right? So these, those, those might have a little bit lower limit than the ones above on the generation previous. Right? So it's, it's, it's not quite as clean as the, you know, there's no real clean formula to determine it. Again, the, the leveling factor here in all of this is adaptive throughput. 
right? Now that that's in, in play, you know, all this other stuff, it's just soft limits. It's more interesting to us than you, right? Because we just need to know where the soft limits are so we can turn on the adaptive throughput. For you guys, it's like, okay, sooner or later, it's gonna get turned on if I need it, and I don't have to do anything to make it happen, right? So this, this whole worrying about partition level limits thing is just, it's becoming a non-issue, which is yeah, but making my get, life a lot it gets easier. Enabled, <laughs> it gets enabled after five minutes. Yeah, so after five minutes. You have you'll to see, do you'll, something you'll, you'll, during this, uh, this five minutes. Yeah, during the first five minutes, you'll see throttling, right? So I would yeah. enable that, I would, I would recommend in your application layer, and I always do, that you implement a throttle retry algorithm, right? So when you see that right throttling on the table, that you're gonna, you're gonna wait 100 milliseconds, you could try again. You're gonna wait 500 milliseconds, you could try again. If you're still erroring out, out, maybe throw in a queue and try again if your workflow allows, right? Or throw the application layer error after you've throttled two or three times. Don't, don't do it right away, right? Uh, this way, if you can queue up those requests, that throttling will eventually go away. Thank you very much. No problem. All right. Can you talk a little bit about um, how we should think about the play between um, auto-scaling and reserve capacity? Um, okay, so, well, reserve capacity is really just about pricing discussion, right? It's like how much throughput do you expect to need on your table, then you should buy some reserve capacity. Uh, and I would always recommend to people that you don't hesitate to buy reserve capacity. If you have production app and you're deployed and you know you're deployed, buy reserve capacity. It's just a big savings. It's not like instances, right? When you get reserved instances, you're kind of, and I actually think this is even better now, but because you can upgrade reserved RIs now, but yeah. it used to be with the RIs that, in EC2 that you're kind of stuck with that instance for the duration of your contract. With, with reserve capacity, it's, it, it's capacity, right? So it doesn't, it's not ever gonna become obsolete, right? So uh, you can buy half what you need now, another half in six months, another half in six months or whatever, and it's not gonna, uh, you know, it's, it's not a problem. You're yeah. never gonna. I mean, so if, if we have like daily bursting um, you know, do you recommend like buying the, the lower level for reserve capacity and then like, you know, not purchasing anything for... Yeah, no, it's a accounting decision for you, right? I mean, if you're comfortable buying a three-year reserve capacity because you know, hey, I'm happy, I'm loving Dynamo and I'm not going to go anywhere else. If you're that way, yeah, go for the maximum discount. If you're thinking, well, you know, I'm trying it out and I don't know, then maybe a one-year might be the way to go. But I would always say if you're going to production with an application, you should be doing it on reserve capacity. It's just save money. Yeah. Uh, question about uh, partitions and load testing. Uh, so we have a bunch of uh, uh, tables in our load testing environments, and they either have zero traffic or they have a couple tens of thousands or hundred thousands uh, units that are that are being used. And um, so, with, with uh, respect to partitions, I'm wondering if you recommend blowing away those tables between tests. That's fine. Or yeah, I blow them just... away. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It depends on your your. I mean, it can take a while to create large tables, right? So you might want to keep them around because they've been created, but you can deprovision them, right? So like when I'm not running my tests, let's provision these things down to like 10 RCUs or whatever so that I don't have to worry about it. Maybe they can have a thousand partitions, but whatever, right? Uh, and then when you run your tests, spin them up so they can have the capacity you need and that way it can happen fast, right? So like if you have like an automated build integration test or something like that, you don't want that thing to be waiting around for 10 or 15 minutes while a table's being created, right? So maybe instead of blowing away the table when it's done, you just dump the data or something like that. Yeah, it's cool. up to you. Thanks. Yeah. Is there a way for us to see the number of partitions on our tables? Uh, I wish there was. Unfortunately, right now, the only way for you to be able to get that information is contact AWS support. They're pretty quick about getting back to you. And, and we will be providing partition level metrics. Uh, you know, we, there was a big push this year 
And if you've been following DynamoDB, just been an amazing amount of features that we have released this year. And, and it's all been things that customers have really been screaming for, you know, auto scaling, TTL, uh, VPC endpoints, uh, you know, adaptive throughput, snapshot restore. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, it's crazy the amount of features that have been released, right? Global tables. Uh, and, 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 but, but, but partition level metrics have been the biggest request. And, and I think there was a lot of, hey, let's get the adaptive throughput out there because it's going to lessen the heat, right, for partition level metrics. And, uh, and now, though, we're going to be, that's obviously starting to rise up the list. So I would expect to see that information in the form it's going to be coming in is probably in your CloudWatch view. You're going to open up and you say, here's my table metrics, and maybe you, you drill down and it'll give you the partition level of each one of the table metrics, right? And it might give you a total count and things like that. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. Could you recommend some resources for uh, data modeling best practices for data? Yeah, um, if you can make it to my session tomorrow. <laughs> uh, we are, uh, those, those charts will be available, DAT 403. Uh, we also have the DynamoDB deep dive from last year. It has a lot of the same information I'm going. Tomorrow is very design pattern focused. Um, the, um, we, my team is actually reworking the docs, the public-facing docs for DynamoDB. It will be refreshed probably sometime Q1 next year, maybe late Q1. I'm trying to get it done, but I'm resource-constrained right now. A lot of the public-facing docs were actually written before GSIs were published or available. So the, tech, the, the, the design guidance is not great. Um, so your best bet is to search for the deep dives on DynamoDB, look for those decks, uh, whatnot, and then if you, if you need to, engage the SA team. And we have some really great resources on the specialist team, and as well as my team, the Black Belt team, that you can engage with as well. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I've tried numerous times to do a full table scan on large tables and never table had scan. it uh, look like it would complete with my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter what the provisioning is. It, the metrics page never shows any throttling, but it'll, after a few minutes, it'll go to like tens of items per second. Oh, wow. The latency will be in the hundreds of milliseconds. Okay. My, my first question is, what are you table scanning for? Um, if I need to do a maintenance, I want well, to visit every to record like to add a property or something. Oh, okay. So you're, you're, so you're actually modifying the items. Each item you're going to be modifying. So if it's table scan to modify... Um, or, or just read, I mean... Right. I mean, well, I, I, the reason I asked the question is I have a great design pattern to actually select all the items on a table to meet a, meet a particular condition, which is what people most often table scan for. Uh, but I don't actually have to do a table scan. I use a GSI to do it. And, and it's done very efficiently without having to burn a whole bunch of RCUs. Um, but it sounds like if your use case is I actually need to find these items because I'm going to be modifying the schema or I'm going to be modifying some property of the items, uh, and you're doing it to every item, uh, then you need the table scan. And so the condition you're describing is it's just never completing? Well, when it drops to you know, a few, rec oh, well, few yeah. items per second, I have 100 million. And yeah, no, that's, that's never going to finish. So we've got to figure out why is it dropping so low. Uh, I guess my question would be uh, GSIs. Do you have GSIs on the table? Yes. And so you're modifying this data. Are you projecting those modifications to your GSIs? Well, just this morning I tried to do it. I was looking for a few bad records in the table. Sure. And I got through about 1% of the table. And right, before it started slowing down. Yeah. I, I, this is why I'm asking you, does, do you, so. And there were no modifications at that I, I point. I get it. But if you see what's happening, I think, I, I don't know, but I think what may be happening is that when you modify the item, your, that modification is being projected back to the GSI. Uh, the GSI then consumes one WCU to, or whatever the size of the item is. How big are your items? 
a few Small. K. Okay, so under a K. So it's going to consume one WCU to update the GSI. So if you've increased the throughput on the table to handle this, but you haven't increased the right throughput on the GSI, then what's going to end up happening is sooner or later you're going to fill the buffer between the GSI and the table and it's going to cause GSI back pressure. So you might be getting throttled at the rate that your GSI can accept the writes. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so I had a problem this morning where I hadn't performed a single write. Oh, so you were just reading? I was just reading. I hadn't found the bad records oh, okay. yet, and okay. it just it All right, man, I, I, I don't know if I can give you an answer right now, but what you probably want to do is engage AWS support, because that should not be happening. What you're describing is absolutely not a condition that, that is normal. And it okay. could be that maybe you, had, maybe you have a bad partition or something on that table, but it should, what you're describing is just not something that should be happening. Okay, so thanks. I, I would open a support ticket, absolutely. Yeah.